0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you have your Bible, open it to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We will, we will be continuing our series in this book. First, let me pray for us. Father, I ask now as we turn our attention specifically to your word that your spirit would speak to our hearts and to our minds. It might illuminate these words on a page, and we might hear your voice. We might see your goodness. And we might rejoice in your work. I ask if there's anything that we hear during this time that is not your voice, it would be quickly forgotten, and what is carried out of this room is your word. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, if you have a Bible, open it to Colossians chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 15 this morning. And so we've been in Colossians chapter 3 for a few weeks now. And so just as a matter of review, we we need to remember that Colossians chapter 3 is just an explanation of all of the implications from what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and 2. So if we can remember back to when we started this series, all the way in the beginning of the letter, Paul articulates some of the most weighty and glorious truths in the entire universe. We see the supremacy of Jesus. That he's the image of the invisible God who stands preeminent with authority above everyone and everything else. And we know that when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, we're not just reading about a Jewish carpenter who came and spoke some words from God, but rather we are seeing the Word of God himself. The God who made the universe and everything in it. God was invisible and unseen in the world, but then through Jesus became visible, knowable. Paul goes on to explain that we were dead in our sin, living as enemies of God. But Jesus, when he came and appeared before us, worked on our behalf to defeat sin and death that we might be given new life. That's Colossians 1 and 2. Christ is preeminent above all, and by his sacrifice, you who were spiritually dead can be made alive. Chapter 3 then goes on to lay out all the ways that these glorious truths change our lives. We set our minds on things above, we put off our old sinful ways, and we put on God's way of living because we're new creations. But even in this new life, what we will shortly find is that there's still challenges that come up against us. And so if you followed Christ for any length of time, you will know that on the one hand you can hold to the glorious truth of scripture that you're a new creation and God is transforming you and working in you through his spirit, but in the other hand you can acknowledge that life remains difficult. And even though you are in a process of transformation, sometimes we don't want to be transformed. And even though we're to be putting sin to death, there's still some sins that we think maybe we can keep those ones alive. And so whether it's temptation in our life or things outside of our life, what we'll quickly find out is that even though God has done all of this powerful work in creation and in our lives to bring us to life, to bring us into his family, there's still challenges that will come up against us that will try to undermine our faith and undermine our community as a family of faith. And so if you have your Bibles open to chapter three, would you look to verse 15, I'll read this passage for us. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. If you look back through chapter three, what you'll find is that Paul gives command after command to the Colossian Christians. Whenever we study the Bible, we often call these words imperatives. It's a verb that's an action that you're supposed to take. So here he gives several imperatives. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Chapter 3, if you look back and reread it, you'll find these imperative commands all over where Paul has laid out who we are in Christ, but now tells us all the entailments that come with being in Christ. And sometimes, as evangelicals, we can struggle with commands from Scripture because we're so cautious of legalism. We're cautious of religion becoming a list of do's and don'ts and commands and rules I have to follow because we understand that we're saved through grace and that it isn't any of the actions that we take that can save us. It's not any of our own work that brings us into God's family, and so we're always cautious whenever we're told something that we have to do because of our faith. But when we read scripture, we learn quickly that once you are made alive by God, it doesn't mean that there's no action left for you to take. None of your works saved you to bring you into God's family, but once you're brought into God's family, God has prepared works for you to do. And so it's natural that when we read the Bible, we would see these imperatives, these commands, all throughout the scriptures. And Paul gives us several imperatives here in this passage to address some of the challenges that we will come up against as we pursue Christ both individually, but also pursue Christ as a family of brothers and sisters. So I want us to look at these challenges to heed Paul's exhortations to us that we might be able to live out into the fullness of who God has made us when he made us alive through Jesus Christ. So the first challenge that we see to the Christian life in this passage is this, that even though we've been made alive in Christ, even though we're a new creation, we are still tempted to sin. If you look verse 15, the first imperative, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. When Christ calls a person to new life, every part of them is changed. The language of death to life isn't just figurative, trying to illustrate the drastic change. It's literal, a literal statement of your spiritual condition. Once dead, now alive, that's how big the change in you is when you come to Christ. You're dead in your sins. God gives you life, and then he gives you his Holy Spirit to guide you, to comfort you, to transform you. He broke your bondage to the sin that held you in chains. He washed you and purified you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Every part of who you are is changed when you are made alive in Christ. But for all that miraculous work that God did in us and for all that he continues to do in us, we still feel that tug of temptation to sin. We still feel that tug to pursue our own desires and to set our own agenda for our life. Even though we've been made alive in Jesus, sin can still look enticing. And what we're doing when we're tempted, and then we give in to that temptation, is that we're questioning what should really be ruling on the throne in our hearts. And we're asking, should Jesus and his peace be ruling here? Or maybe it should be something else, some of the other chaos that we've tried before. And temptation to the Christian is an audition by the things of this world for who or what else might be able to sit on the throne in your heart. And so temptations will come up and try to convince you That this sin, or this course of action, or this way of thinking, this is what should be ruling your life. You should be pursuing financial security. You should be pursuing fame. You should be pursuing comfort. That's what should be ruling in your heart and in your life. So then we have to ask ourselves should we let those things rule our life like they once did? Should we let money rule in our hearts and become the motivation and driving factor behind what we do? Should we let anger rule in our hearts? Should we let lust rule in our hearts? Paul has already told us, put off the old self. Those were all the old ways you used to live. We're to put those things off if you've been raised with Christ. And now instead, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So just because you've been made alive with Christ doesn't mean that temptation won't still call out to you and try to convince you that living apart from God's way is the better way. So Paul is clear. Daily remind yourself that the peace of Christ is what should rule in your heart. That every other ambition, every other goal should be dethroned until your life pursues Christ alone. Temptation auditions to say that it belongs, this sin belongs at the center of your heart. And Paul says, let the peace of Christ be there instead. And this peace that he mentioned has multiple dimensions. When we mention the peace of Christ, there's so much wrapped up into just those three words. A couple of the dimensions we see. First, peace with Christ means peace with God. In Romans 8, Paul writes to the Romans and says that Those who God predestined, he called, which is the same language he used here in Colossians of calling. But then those that he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, God also glorified. We were enemies of God. When he deserved our worship, we sought to worship ourselves instead. And that's the sin that's been going back all the way to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve stood in a garden and had to decide, do I trust God and the things that he said, or do I trust myself and the things that I desire? And the serpent gave them that temptation that they could be just like God. They could be their own God, worthy of worship. And so that's who we were, but God intervened. He predestined us for adoption, and having predestined us, he then called us to himself and he justified us through the work of jesus and now he's working to display his glory in your new life your relationship with god used to be that of a fugitive versus a judge running away trying to escape the wrath that you rightfully deserve for your wrongdoing but now your relationship is that of a loving father and his child Because of Christ's work, we have peace with God. Jesus brings peace between you and God. Where once there was wrath and enmity, there's now a father and his child. That's not where the peace of Christ ends. The peace of Christ means that we also have peace in our own hearts. The psalmist in Psalm 42 reflects and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When we know that God is no longer standing in judgment over us, the turmoil and the angst in our own hearts can find peace. Because the guilt of all of our wrongdoing has been washed away. And the anxiety that we have to somehow work to make ourselves better or to make ourselves right before God, or spend enough energy trying to pursue godly things that he might have favor on us, all of that gets washed away when we understand who Jesus is. When we understand that God is our salvation. That God has done everything necessary for you to stand before him pure, innocent, and clean. So the psalmist turns to his own soul and says, why would you be cast down when you know that God is your salvation? Christian, we can tell the same thing to our own hearts and our own souls. We don't have to be cast down. We don't have to be in turmoil because we know that we have peace with God and so we can have peace in our hearts. Jesus brings that peace to a troubled heart when he saves us. But again, the peace of Christ doesn't just end there. It doesn't just end with God having peace with us and us experiencing a peace and satisfaction in him. The peace of Christ continues outward until we have peace with others. In a passage very similar to this, in Ephesians, Paul says this, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who made us both one and who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. "...by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, that is Jesus, and preached, "...peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." In this particular passage, Paul's looking at division that rises up between Jews and Gentiles. Jews who have a long historical claim to being the people of God. And Gentiles who at that time had a fairly new claim to being the people of God. And Paul says to them both that through Jesus they can have peace with one another. That because they enjoy peace with God, they now can enjoy peace as God's children with one another. That whatever divisions might have risen up against them, That whatever things might have come and tried to steal away their unity have been done away with because they now all belong to the family of God. And the same thing holds true for us today. For all who are in Christ, we now have peace not just with God, but with all of God's children as well. One of the miracles of the church, and by that I mean the whole church, throughout all of the globe, throughout all of time, one of the miracles of the church is that God has brought together people who have no earthly business being together and he's made us family. The cross of Jesus has not just brought peace and unity with God, it's brought peace and unity with Christians. And it's so easy for us to forget the unity that we share as believers. The most fundamental thing about us is that we've been made alive in Christ. But we're so quick to forget that and to look at secondary things to raise up divisions between our brothers and sisters and ourselves. So we have to remember constantly, God has called us all out of sins, God has called us all out of the places we were and the places we came from. And he's called us all together into one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that because of that, no matter who we are today, no matter who we are in this room, no matter who we agree and disagree with about different things in this world, for all who are in Christ, we are joined together as family. And we will be family forever into eternity. We are able to have peace with one another because of what God has done in all of our lives together. So when a Christian brother or sister sins against you, there can be real reconciliation because we can forgive one another much when all of us know that we've been forgiven infinitely more by God. And so we can have the capacity to time and time again forgive one another and experience forgiveness from one another because we know that God has taken away all sins and that all the things that we have done to sin against one another have ultimately been a sin against God himself, and he's forgiven us for that. So we now have the space to forgive one another and live in unity. In Colossians 3... Paul says that we're called in one body to the peace of Christ. We enjoy Christ's peace together because it's not only transformed our relationship with God, but it's transformed our relationship with one another. And we would be foolish to think that this new life in Christ is something that we primarily experience on an individual basis. That it's just something between me and God. God has created you. For the church and has created the church for you God has made us to be in fellowship with one another that we might build one another up it would be foolish to say that you can flourish and grow in your faith without your brothers and sisters in Christ it would be just as foolish for the head to say it has no need of the feet in a body Christ has given us to one another, for one another, that we might live and display his glory together. And he's given us peace with each other through Jesus, so that's possible. So Paul's first imperative, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Because a whole host of other things will try to rule in your hearts, even after you've been made alive in Christ. There's no end to things that will try and claim, I belong at the center of your heart. But instead, let the peace of Christ rule there. And how do we do that? We revel in God's goodness. Like the psalmist, we look back on God and the salvation he's given us. We look back often and remember that apart from God, we were nothing. But now with God, we are his children. And he calls us daughter. He calls us son. How do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? We turn daily, hourly if necessary, to God in thankfulness. Paul three times in this passage alone drives the Colossians to thankfulness. Because when we remember our own condition before God, when we see all that he's done in us, we can't help but be thankful because we know we didn't do anything to deserve that. We didn't do anything to earn that. We didn't do anything to keep that. But God still pours out his grace and mercy in our life daily. So we turn regularly and thank him. Otherwise, we'll begin to think, all these good things that are happening or that God has given me is because I've, I've earned that. I've worked hard enough for that. But it's all a gift of grace, so thank him. The peace of Christ rules when we're quick to forgive one another. If we begin to harbor up resentment against our Christian brothers and sisters... It will start to choke out our witness to the world around us. It will start to choke out our community and fellowship that we have with one another. And when we do that, we'll become isolated, separated from each other. And our faith will wither and suffer for it. So be quick to forgive one another so that we might maintain the unity of the Spirit and continue to encourage one another in the peace of Christ. And the fourth way to have the peace of Christ rule in your heart is to root out sin and temptation wherever it's found. To let the Spirit convict you where you stumble, where you sin. To let him warn you where you're tempted. And to always seek to root out the old things and the old ways in which you used to live and put on the new things that God has given you. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart rather than anything else. A second challenge that Christians encounter is this. Though we are alive in Christ, we don't always treasure his word. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. By giving us that reminder, Paul is acknowledging that at times the word of Christ might not dwell richly in us. Sometimes it might not seem to dwell at all, where we just choose to ignore what God has given us in Scripture. And we try to figure out on our own what we ought to value, and we make our own determination of what's important in our life. But perhaps more concerning would be that the word of Christ might dwell in us anemically. That we could know God's word. We'd be familiar with what's in our Bibles, but it doesn't flourish in our lives to produce any meaningful impact. So we've read the Bible, but it doesn't ever move us to action. It doesn't ever convict us that we're in sin. It never stirs our emotions or leads us to thankfulness towards God. So, Christian, there's great danger if the word of Christ dwells in you anemically, where you're familiar with the Bible and you can say the right sort of Christian y things, but the full weight of what Scripture says does not sink down into your heart. And it's easy for us to trust Scripture and all the easy things that it has to say, where God loves us and he works on our behalf, all true things. But then we choose to overlook the hard things that Scripture has to say, like take up your cross and follow Christ, or to be warned that the world will reject you if you stand for the gospel, or that you are to put sin to death so that it does not put you to death. Whenever we let the word of Christ sink in just a little bit, we'll take in all the good, easy things Scripture has to say and bank on those. But then overlook any of the more challenging things that it has to say. Any of the things that might lead us to have to change. When the word dwells in us anemically, our emotions will become ruled by the occasion of the hour rather than rooted in Christ. The anxieties and worries of this world and of our current circumstance will take over because we don't fully embrace the truth of what God has told us in Scripture. And so we read about a sovereign God. We read about a God who rules over everything, but then when something goes wrong, we immediately doubt whether God is truly sovereign and in control of that situation. When that happens, we're suddenly subject just to wherever our emotions and anxieties take us. We turn to disappointment when things go the wrong way because it seems like we should have deserved more, deserved better, because we haven't truly embraced what Scripture has told us about God and the way that he works towards his children. And so it is of concern for us to not have the word of Christ dwelling in us at all, but it might be more concerning if we're familiar with the Bible, but we have not let its full weight sink down into our hearts. When we've gotten just enough Bible to think I'm good, but not enough of God's word for it to continue to work in us, to transform us more and more into the image of his son. That's not the way that God intended us to to live our new lives in Christ. The word should dwell richly in us. He's given us Christ. He's given us his word that it might dwell richly, that we might continually taste and see God's goodness, that we might continually rejoice in God, whether things go well for us or whether things go poorly for us. He's given us his words that we might encourage one another and build one another up to love and to good works, That we might be able to continue to challenge one another to see more of God and who he is. He has given his word that it might dwell in us and bear a fruit that shows the treasure of his goodness in our lives. So Paul's exhortation, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And there's three examples he gives of how that plays out. Look again at verse 16. When the word of Christ dwells richly, we are to teach and admonish one another. Again, Paul's not just concerned with individual Christians, but also Christians in a community of faith. And when we know God's word, when we soak in God's word, there will be times that we can help other believers understand God's word better. And there will also be times when we see a brother or a sister, a dear friend, in error or in sin... Or we need to bring the word of God into that situation. we We need to not be scared of what that might do to the relationship because we know that God's word is true. And it's worth pursuing with our whole life to live how God would have us. So when a brother or sister is in sin, we sometimes come alongside to gently admonish, to use the word of Christ to help correct them that we might see them restored. When the word dwells richly in us, we sing with one another. It's what we just did 15 minutes ago. We sang together as an overflow of what's happening inside of us. The singing that Paul's talking about here with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is an expression of what our minds are thinking on and our hearts are treasuring. And so hopefully when we come into this room, this isn't the only time we find ourselves moved to singing throughout the week. Because when we spend time in God's word and we see all that he's done, how can you not help but sing at his goodness? How can you not help but proclaim his glory? And when we come into this room, my hope is that our time in song is just an overflow of what's been happening throughout the week. We can't help but sing when we're with one another because of God's goodness to us. Third way that the word dwells richly again in thankfulness. With thankfulness in our hearts to God, we thank God for one another. We thank God with one another for the things that he has done for us. When the word of Christ dwells richly in us, again we are moved to awe and thankfulness. How undeserving we are, but how good God is to us. So what happens when the word doesn't dwell richly in us? How do we get out of that place? First, I would say this, Christian, don't be discouraged. Every follower of Christ goes through highs and lows, where at one time being with God and reading his word will be the number one priority on your mind, will be the sweetest thing you can think of and the thing you rush to every day. But at other times in your life, it will be the farthest thing from your mind to turn to God and his word. But throughout the highs, throughout the lows, we remember that it's not our own fervor that keeps our faith. It is Christ and what he's done for us. And so at times when we treasure God's word above all else, and at times when we try to distance it from our minds, for those who are in Christ, God is still holding you in his hand. So don't be discouraged as if you're experiencing something that no other Christian in the history of Christianity has ever experienced. Every Christian at times try to be distant from God's word. So what do we do to have the word dwell richly in us? There's many things, just a a few that I wanted to mention. First, read God's word. This is something that we can do that the majority of Christians throughout history have been unable to do. So we shouldn't take for granted the privilege that we have that we can hold God's word in our hands. We can open it up and read it in our native language. That's an experience that most Christians throughout history have not had. For much of church history, many people could not read. And even when people could read, the Bible was not available in their language to be read. And so God used other means for his people to know his word. But now for us, a grace that he has given us is literacy and English Bibles. And so read God's word. Meditate on God's word. Memorize it so that it sinks down into your heart that it stays on your mind, that it comes back to you throughout the day. When you're in God's word, thank him for what he is showing you along the way. We can sing God's word so that it might dwell richly in us. Songs have a funny way of working themselves into our memory in a way that spoken word has a hard time doing. Whenever we try to figure out what songs to sing from this stage as a part of our Sunday mornings, we take that time very seriously. Because the reality is that we can sing a song once, and it will have a way of working its way into your mind, into your heart. And years later, you'll just hum a line that you hadn't thought of in forever, and it comes back to your mind. And so if we've sung something that says something incorrect about God, that could stay with you for years. So we try to always be careful about what we're singing from the stage because we understand that music has a way of working its way into our mind, into our hearts, that stays with us. But the good news there is that when we sing songs full of rich truth, that will stay with us when we can't quite bring to mind our memory verses. When we're able to sing of God's goodness, we'll hum those tunes day and night for the rest of our life. And even as we sing of God's goodness, that has a way of instructing our own heart and soul how it ought to feel. Like the psalmist, we can turn to our own heart and say, why are you downcast? God's your salvation. We can turn to our heart and remind it once again of God and his goodness. So sing of God's goodness. Sing his truth. the last way that the word might dwell richly is to teach others. Paul says in his exhortation here that we might teach and admonish one another with the word. So if you've been walking with Christ for some period of time, try to find a Christian who doesn't know the word quite as well as you do. Who hasn't been walking with Christ quite as long and teach them. That often just looks like opening up the Bible together, reading it together, and understanding what God has said. And if you feel like you're not at a place where you can teach someone the word, then I would suggest find someone who can teach you the word. If you feel that you don't know God's word well enough, or that you don't really have a grasp of what the Bible says, then find someone in this church who you know is older and been walking with Christ for a longer time than you have, and ask them, would you Help me read through the Bible, that I might understand God's word better, that I might learn from it, that my mind might be shaped by it. And So teach the word to others or be taught by others. These are just some ways that the word will dwell richly in us if we read it and meditate on it. If we thank God for what he has done as we read through it. If we sing through the truths of Scripture, and if we constantly seek to teach Scripture or to learn Scripture, then the word of Christ will dwell richly in us. And here's what happens. When the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, then his word will begin to dwell richly in us. Because when the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, we understand that Christ, above all else, is worthy of our worship. And so we'll seek to be in his word. We'll seek to drive it down deep into our hearts that it might change us. And as his word dwells richly in us, our whole lives will be turned and reoriented to continually live in his name. Paul ends this passage by saying whatever you do, word or deed, literally anything in your life, whatever action you take, thought you have, or word you speak, let that be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. To live in the name of Jesus means that all our efforts, all our ambitions, all our goals, our motivations are aimed at proclaiming the lordship of Jesus and magnifying his glory to all the world. So having seen God's goodness, having experienced his love and grace, having been raised to life in Christ, we live in his name. We do everything to his glory. That means that we work in the name of Jesus. We raise children in the name of Jesus. We spend money in the name of Jesus. We retire in the name of Jesus. We love one another in the name of Jesus. We share the gospel in the name of Jesus. We suffer loss in the name of Jesus. We celebrate in the name of Jesus and we thank God in the name of Jesus. If we have been raised with Christ, we do all things in the name of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Paul's exhortations to us. I ask that the peace of Christ would rule in our hearts and that as temptation comes and tries to audition other kings for the throne in our hearts, we would continue to cling to Christ. I ask that your word might dwell richly in us, producing fruit, and that in all things we might live in your name. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.